Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new series, Walking Through the Book Through New Eyes, written by James Jordan. And here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts will discuss chapter two. As always, we do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. Specifically, we'd love for you to head over and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We just wrapped a video series with Peter Lightheart walking through the Theopolitan vision, and we are now in the midst of a series walking through his book, Theopolitan Reading. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this discussion. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Through New Eyes, Chapter 2. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James B. John. Jeff Myers is again unavailable for this recording and will join us as we continue our study through James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes. Uh, we did an episode last week uh, looking at the introduction and the first chapter and uh, also uh, talked about our own experience with the book and uh, uh, set out some of Jim's uh, central themes and central aims in the book. One thing that I, I should have mentioned more explicitly, I think it's implicit. Anybody who's following Theopolis is aware of this, but I'll say it. I'll say it once again that uh, Theopolis really is the outgrowth of the work that Jim did uh, himself and through the Biblical Horizons ministry that he created in the late '80s and early '90s. Theopolis is really a building on that legacy that uh, that Jim started. And so Through New Eyes is not just personally an important book for my development as a theologian, my development as a Bible commentator and, and, and teacher, but also it's been crucial, a crucial foundation for everything we're doing at Theopolis. It's one of the, um, one of the uh, assigned books for our fellows. Whenever we have a class, this, you know, the, the kind of approach to scripture that Jim lays out in Through New Eyes is, uh, is being communicated so the Theopolis project has been deeply shaped by what Jim, what Jim accomplished in this book. Uh, we're going to be looking mainly at chapter two today, but I, we wanted to go back and pick up a couple of threads from, from chapter one uh, that we didn't uh, we didn't go into in quite enough, quite as much detail as we wanted to. Uh, and I'll start by pointing to the end of the chapter, end of chapter one, where Jim lays out a set of rules for biblical interpretation, and I just wanted to highlight a couple of things that I think are important for the way he goes about things. One of the rules he gives, the first one he gives, is that biblical symbolism is not a code. And what he means by that is that you don't have, a, you don't have symbols where every time you see a particular plant, a thorn bush, it represents a particular, uh, a particular quality uh, or a particular idea or a particular person. Rather, Symbols are part of symbols have a variety of different associations. They have a variety of different associations in different sorts of settings. So, for example, if you have a thorn bush, you have thorns mentioned in Genesis 3 as part of the curse. Thorns and thistles are going to grow up on the earth, and that sets the pattern for the way thorns, thorn symbolism is used through the rest of the Bible. But that doesn't mean that every time you see thorn, it means the same thing. Sometimes you have thorns that represent people, like in the parable of Jotham in Judges 9. Jotham gives this parable about the different plants that are asked to become king of the plants. 
the thorn bush doesn't have anything else to do. He's, he's sitting around doing nothing, producing nothing. And so he's willing to take the reins of ruling over the other plants and, and he's going to do it uh, abusively and violently and, and fire is going to break out because all you have is a, a useless bramble bush that's uh, creating. So there you have curse, there, there you have thorn that's become a symbol of a particular kind of person and especially a particular kind of ruler. Uh, but then you have thorn bushes and thorn plants that are associated with the desert. Each environment of the Bible has its own characteristic flora and fauna. Uh, gardens have certain kinds of flora and fauna uh, and deserts have certain kind of animals and certain kind of plants. And so you have various places in the prophets where thorns are described as uh, coming up in the, in the desert land when, when the Lord devastates Israel. When the Israelite land, which is the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, which is like a garden and supposed to be like a garden, is desolated by invading enemies, for example, then the thorn bush springs up. That does have some connection back to, back to Genesis 3 and the, and the curse, but it's not, it's not just a, a coded thing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's associated with the desert. It's associated with a lot of other uh, 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 symbols that cluster around it. So I, I think that's really important. I've, I've come to think of the, the way biblical symbolism work, works as not so much a matter of metaphor, not so much as metaphor where uh, a particular thing stands for another thing, uh, but rather more as metonymy, where uh, one thing brings up associations with other things, like the particular plant can bring up a whole host of associations. You see a, a thorn bush referenced in, in the prophets, and you think back to Genesis 3, and you may think to... Judges 9, and you may think to other passages that talk about the desert. And instead of having this one-to-one correspondence between the symbol and some reality that it's symbolizing, each symbol takes on this cluster of different associations. And there are cluster, a cluster of associations that have developed and clustered around the symbol over time and through, through the development of the biblical story. Metonymy, I think, is a, a more precise way to think about how bibl- biblical sim- symbolism work than than uh, simile or metaphor, uh, usually. Another example we could think of here is the common claim that something like the number seven represents completion and perfection, and it does, but it does so because it's the final day of the creation sequence. And so the um, association that it has is not just this abstract symbolism that every time you see the number seven, it represents this quality. It is supposed to draw your mind back to the original Um, occurrence of that number in the context of the creation week, and then the ways that that is played out in later stories and develops all these other associations. And that particular quality of completing a sequence or representing rest, all these sorts of things are strengthened and developed like a snowball rolling down hill and becoming this big ball at the end of it. Um, In the same way, the symbolism of scripture is not just this abstract symbolism, but something that develops over time from very concrete associations. Yeah. And then of course you have inversions of that. So you have sequences of seven, most prominently in the book of revelation that are decreation sequences and that lead not to a final Sabbath of rest, but to a a destruction and, uh, and, and expulsion and, and restlessness. So again, you have, uh, you have the the common symbol, but it gets it can the different facets that are brought out in different contexts, and uh, it, it can it can get modified and inverted. But does as you said, Alistair, one of Jim's themes over the years has been that uh, 
all of scripture is growing out of the seeds that are planted in Genesis one through three. So all the patterns and structures and uh, basic symbols and the furniture of the world, as he describes it, all of that is laid out at least in seed form in germinal form in the opening chapters of Genesis. And so uh, it's a, it's a helpful rule uh, of thumb, not, not to, not to make it into a, a kind of wooden, uh, we, we don't want to apply it in a wooden fashion, but a good rule of thumb to think, uh, you encounter something in the Bible and you think about how is this uh, a development of a pattern or a development of a symbol that's first introduced in the early chapters, in the early chapters of Genesis. I wanted to also highlight again, I, I mentioned the fact that uh, Jim says that symbolism is interpreted in the light of biblical presuppositions and philosophy. He talks about the way systematic theology can serve as a check on, uh, on, on exegesis and, and interpretation of biblical symbols. Uh, and the last thing he points to is that uh, a good biblical teacher is alert to what other scholars and other teachers say about the Bible. And I think those are, those are important uh, to highlight because of uh, partly as a, as a, as a counter to the reputation that uh, uh, Jordan has gotten over the years of just kind of uh, having a, a free association method that, uh, you know, it's a stream of consciousness method. Now, this makes me think of this, which makes me think of this, which makes me think of this. And you just, you just string out things that, uh, that are uh, reminding you of something else. And he's setting certain parameters on that kind of imaginative stream. That, that's certainly part of what's going on, uh, that something in the Bible alerts us to something out of the Bible, which alerts us to something else. That's part of, that's part of the, the expansion of imagination that Jim is after. But it's not unconstrained. And uh, again, being aware of the history of biblical interpretation, being aware of uh, how current other scholars are understanding certain passages, that's an important, it's an important check. It doesn't mean that we can never disagree with what the tradition has said or what uh, current scholarship says, uh, but uh, awareness of that, and uh, uh, at least it should be a caution, as I said in the last episode, it should, at least it, it should be a caution if we're coming up with things that are utterly unique. It's rare for anybody to do that. And uh, if we do that, then we should at least check ourselves. We should check our, check our work again to make sure that we're on the right track. On that line, I think one of the things that is a very important part of the way that Jim and those who have been influenced by Jim read the Bible is that we read it in community with each other. Um, we can often have this impression of the reader as someone who stands in grand solitude as a scholar just with their books perhaps they're reading in company with other scholars in the reference um, literature that they're using but the sort of reading that um, biblical horizons and theopolis has always been engaged in is a reading in conversation the sort of reading that we're doing here where we're constantly bouncing things off each other and giving feedback and saying, that doesn't quite persuade me. How about viewing it this way? Um, that's always been an important part of it. And within the main um, guild of academic scholarship, there can often be a, a sort of competitive um, antagonistic attitude where everyone's trying to defend their own research um, corner and they can share ideas to an extent, but there's not the same sense of a common project of engaging with this text and learning together. And so when you're reading Jim's interpretations, he wants to have people who are reading the Bible carefully and attentively to bounce their thoughts off him, and he will give his thoughts back. And there's 
a deeper, um, more multilateral um, conversation about the text than you would typically have within the context of the biblical theological guild, for instance. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I think, if I recall, Jim explicitly grounds um, that idea of subjecting things to checks and other readers in Ephesians 4 and in the fact that God has given um, apostles and teachers and so forth and gifts to the church precisely for that reason. And so I think he would see those checks as a recognition of what God has done and grounded in God's desire to lead and inform his people o- over the ages. I think that's kind of where it's all stemming from. Right. Uh, that's something that I've uh, emphasized particularly of late in uh, when I'm writing on hermeneutics. Uh, my Theopolitan reading book places the, the need for mentors and models at the center. And I, I, this, this came to me after I had written uh, Deep Exes Jesus, which one of the flaws of that book uh, is that I do, without intending to explicitly, I assume a picture of a pastor or a biblical scholar in a study or a library with his books, not talking to anyone else and not being taught by anyone else, really. So I've tried to correct that over the more recent years and, and emphasize the fact that we we need, partly it's just a matter of my own experience. How did I learn to read well? I learned to read the Bible well by listening to Jim, by having Jim, by collaborating with Jim, by having Jim point to things in the text that I hadn't noticed, by having other people in the biblical horizon circle doing the same thing. Uh, that's crucial, as Alistair said, because uh, as, as important as hermeneutical rules are, it's important to reflect on what language is and how language works and how we come to accurate and uh, fruitful ways of reading text. That's all, that's all, as a theoretical project, that's all very important. But those rules can't apply themselves. You need people to apply the rules. That's, that's true in every sphere of life. Uh, that's an, a point that I, I learned many years ago from uh, from my friend Doug, Doug Jones, a, co- a colleague at New St. Andrews College, uh, that uh, in every sphere, what you need is uh, judgment. You need somebody to, who's uh, aware of the rules, who's capable of applying rules to new situations, uh, and can pass judgment in wisdom. And that's what you, that's what you need when you're talking about, uh, that's, that's what you need hermeneutically. It's not enough just to have the rules. You need to have people to tell you, well, no, sorry, that's, you're getting you're getting away from the you're you're floating free of the text at that point. Uh, you have to have to have mentors who teach you how to how to see things that you don't see. Trying to think about the way that I've been formed by um, Jim's work, one of the things that has stood out to me um, and helped it to crystallize is that Jim isn't primarily teaching you to interpret the Bible, and we tend to approach the Bible as interpreters. We have an inert text in front of us. And we have to give it voice by applying hermeneutical rules and um, going through certain processes of interpretation upon it. And Jim, I think, is doing something different. He's encouraging us to approach the text as a living word that we need to learn how to hear. And the text is not just this inert thing in front of us. It's something that we have to be postured towards in more of a relational way. We need to train our ears to hear it. Rules are, they have their place, but they're not the primary thing. And if you're fixated upon rules, often you'll miss the way that the Bible is actually communicating. And so he does talk about rules for interpretation here, 
But the more that you follow his approach, the more you'll find you're doing something rather different from the sorts of people who approach the text as this inert thing that needs to be interpreted. It's far more about learning to approach the Bible as a living word that you are subject to as you're hearing it. And you need to engage with it in conversation with other people who are under the text and seeking to be faithful to it. And all this time, just as you're embedded within the world, um, and not just this scientific spectator standing outside of it, you're embedded within this engagement within the biblical text. You cannot stand removed from it and be neutral with regard to it. You need to stand under it. You need to stand with others in performance of it. And that sort of relationship is one that he's constantly encouraging through this book. Alistair, you also wanted to pick up on uh, the the uh, our discussion in the previous episode about the six days of creation and highlight a few other things that Jim pulls out of that. Not so much within Through New Eyes, but the six days are just such a foundational pattern. And he gets into these sorts of patterns far more in From Bread to Wine and others of his works. But that pattern is one that we see playing out in many parts of scripture. We've seen, for instance, in our discussion of the Gospel of John and the signs, um, the seven days of creation are present there, not just in the number seven, but even in a more worked out pattern. You can see the same sorts of thing in the tabernacle. In chapters one and two of Genesis, we have that seven-day pattern. In the book of Revelation, we have lots of sevens, again, calling back to this. And so once we begin to pay attention to this, we begin to see it's not just the number seven, it's not just um, a sequence of seven things. There is a broader framework within which, not in the sense of the framework hypothesis, but a broader framework within which a lot of other things in scripture will come into view. And even within the text itself, we um, in just looking in chapter one, we can see patterns of forming and filling. We can see a literary structure in the way that those days hang together. And they're not just a random, they're not just in random order, as if God was jumping from one thing to another without some sort of reason to the sequence. That sequence makes sense and it develops stage by stage. And as we begin to understand that, again, we'll see the foundations for so much of the rest of Scripture are laid just in these opening chapters of Genesis. And once you begin to understand these chapters, so much else will come into view. Yeah, I think I think it's, uh, as you said, Alistair, there's not just uh, the, the bare formal pattern of, of six plus one or the pattern of seven, but the associations of each day. Uh, this is something that... Uh, it's not original with Jim. He, he's building on work that's done by other, other scholars on Exodus. But the sequence of Exodus 25 to 31, which is describing the materials and the construction of the tabernacle, it's not just that you have seven speeches of God there that culminate with the Sabbath command. That, that basic structure alerts you to the fact that there's some kind of creation illusion going on. But when Jim talks about this, for example, in his lectures on Exodus, he highlights the fact that the, the particular sections of uh, that, that long passage in Exodus associate with the particular days of creation and the things that are created on each of those days. So the fourth speech in, in Exodus is the concoction of the anointing oil for Aaron, which links up with the, the fourth day of creation, which is the creation of the heavenly lights 
and associates the anointing with oil with the illumination of Aaron. Aaron becomes a kind of a, a burning bush, an enlightened one in the holy place, in the sanctuary, and uh, associates uh, Aaron with the heavenly lights of the firmament, which makes the sense that the uh, the tabernacle is a kind of firmament, firmament structure. So the, the linkage of the fourth speech of Exodus and day four creation is not just the numerical one, but there are associations. Sometimes the associations obscure. And when Jim goes through this in, in various places, uh, the the fifth day slot is often a, an obscure one. That's the in the creation days. That's the uh, day on which God creates birds that uh, fly across the face of the firmament, nest on the ground, and uh, fish and great sea monsters in the deep. Uh, and then you have odd associations, odd things that are created on them that are associated with that in Exodus. Uh, I can't remember now. The I think the fifth the fifth section of the the fifth speech in the book of Exodus is about the incense. The concoction of the incense is going to be used in the tabernacle. This is a whole the garments incense. of the high priest in the first sequence, and then the second sequence, the incense. Yeah. So you have right. So the fifth day is associated with with garments, and then in the second in the larger sequence is associated with incense. So what what is what's the connection then between fish swarming in the sea, birds in the heavens, garments, and incense? A cloud of incense that's going up. The numerical connection suggests that there must be some kind of connection of meaning, but um, Jim's approach would be to, you know, his encouragement would be to, to meditate on that. How, how are these are mutually interpreting symbols? Because the, the structures are highlighting some kind of similarity across those, across those different sections. Yeah. And that, that's the kind of consideration, I think, that kind of encourages, encourages us to, if we see some connections between two passages like that, some sort of, uh, you know, the odd day that matches up well, so like the fourth day, for instance, and then we think there might be something to it. I think there can be um, a real value in kind of just sticking with that and um, not instantly just saying, well, there's not enough, so I'm going to reject that altogether, or not just desperately trying to scrabble around and find some other connections, regardless of how tenuous they are, but just kind of, uh, parking something like that and putting a placeholder there and, and, and thinking maybe something else will shed more light on it. And um, when I was preparing for this, I, I thought I'd see if I could find some kind of critical reviews of through new eyes. And that was one of the um, criticisms, I think, that some of the connections just seemed unsupported or unclear or just too far out there. And you know, when a connection strikes us like that, it, it may be that it's a bad connection or it's maybe that there are lots of things that we're not aware of that if we did appreciate, we would see it as a stronger connection. And, and so a lot of this, I think, is the sort of thing that just takes time to uh, chew over. And as we're reading through the Bible on a regular basis in our Christian lives, it is the sort of thing that kind of later readings of the Bible might confirm or or, or disconfirm that we need to weigh up over time. I think it's important to recognise that Jim has never been taking some grand abstract sim uh, system that maybe he's derived from the text in some point, but then applying that to each and every passage and forcing the text into this system. 
Rather, he's always being attentive to the text and having that to and fro between these things that the text has drawn our attention to more generally. Some of the patterns, for instance, like the pattern of Exodus or the pattern of creation or thinking about the relationship between the tabernacle and the higher heavens, all these sorts of things. Um, They've trained our attention, but we're using that along with deep attention to the specifics of individual passages and not forcing the pattern upon them, but using the pattern to shed light. And at certain points, the pattern has to step back because the pattern will not exhaustively explain the details and certain details will not fit the pattern directly. There will be ways in which the pattern can be broken as part of the purpose of the passage, or there may be ways in which the passage is precisely a variation of um, the pattern. So it's not as if if you thought merely in terms of the abstract higher pattern, you'd be missing the significance of this particular variation of it that contrasts with other forms of the pattern elsewhere. And so the danger, I think, for some people taking this sort of symbolic approach is to try and get away from the specifics of or to get away from the specifics of the text, not necessarily intentionally, into this grand system that applies everywhere, this uh, um, pattern of the Exodus or this uh, pattern of creation. And that's all that's going on, rather than these constant variations and developments of these themes and this constant interplay between the specific and the more general pattern or the sets of family resemblances. And so that approach to the text, I think, has within it some inbuilt controls and checks and um, a certain degree of reticence when it comes to applying a larger biblical pattern onto any particular text. Yes, I mean, a pattern that fits too well almost doesn't tell you anything because it just becomes bare repetition. You might think of it as a fractal structure or something and zooming in, you don't actually gain anything. It's just exactly the same pattern again. And clearly the Bible's not like that. Yeah, uh, Alistair's word for this, I think, is tarry. You tarry with the text, which I think is a is a good term to describe what uh, what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to muse on it. We're supposed to meditate on it. Jim says in the opening chapters that uh, ancient books are made to be studied, not just to be read and discarded. There weren't any pulp paperbacks from the ancient world. Texts were precious uh, and rare. People who could write and read texts were rare, uh, and they packed as much as they could into the text. So it, it, it's uh, they're written in a way that bears reading. The other thing I was going to say in response to uh, James's comment about the uh, the critical review. Uh, I think that uh, one of the things that's kind of operating behind this, um, some some of the criticisms, not that I'm saying through noise is above criticism, but one thing that I think is operating behind some of the criticisms is uh, a kind of desiccated Protestant principle that everyone can read the Bible, and therefore everyone can read the Bible equally well, which is simply not the case. Some people are better readers by the gifting of the Spirit by uh, their their natural inclinations, they are uh, some people are better readers than others. Some pe- people have been better trained and have greater maturity in their interpretation reading the scriptures. And because of that, some people see things and see how things fit together in scripture in a way that others don't. Uh, and the fact that a less mature reader can't see it immediately doesn't mean it's not there. The parallel that I often point to is my my experience of, uh, of listening to music with our youngest son, Smith. Uh, Smith is a composer. 
and he's uh, has a natural ear for music uh, and we'll be listening to something and he'll point something out. He'll say, did you, did you hear the, uh, did you hear the piano come in there? I love that piano section. I, 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 I honestly have to say it. And I didn't, I did not hear that piano come in. I didn't hear the, I didn't hear that trumpet section come in. I didn't have that kind of discernment. I, my ear is not attuned well enough to hear the things that he's hearing. And it'd be absurd for me to say he's hearing things uh, because he's got the natural gifting. He's got the training. He's doing it professionally now. So I trust him to, when he says he hears something in music that it's actually there and that it's me that's missing something. And I need to attune my ears better. And I think the same, the same thing is going on with, with Bible interpretation that the, some people are just better than others. And the fact that the fact that less mature readers don't get it immediately is, is no argument really. Beyond that, I think there's the way that we use the text. We can often see the text primarily as giving us theological propositions and that we use those propositions to establish theological positions. And we use those positions to argue against people who are in error. And yet the fact is that most of the sorts of positions that Jim brings forward from the text actually aren't sufficiently strong to make those sorts of arguments that are absolutely certain that no one who actually followed the argument could deny it. Um, they are far more probabilistic in character. They have a cumulative weight. They are things that are invitations to see the text in a particular way. And it's reading the text in a more literary fashion. It's not a, a philosophical text in the ways that we're used to. Um, there may be points in scripture where it has more of that character if you're reading the Pauline epistles, for instance. But that a way, that way of approaching the text, I think, has a certain degree of uncertainty that makes it less suitable for theological arguments um, against people who are just resistant. It also makes um, people, I think, if they're operating within the assumption that we must either have absolutely certain arguments or these readings don't really matter much at all. Um, Jim says up front that there is, there are a number of arguments that he's making that will have different degrees of um, strength, uh, different degrees of likelihood. There will be ones that are presented with more supporting argumentation, others that he's just putting out there and wants you to think about. And these things can lead to theological insight, but they lead to insight in a rather different way from a direct um, theological proposition that you might read in Paul that cannot be interpreted in some other way. Uh, if you really want to resist the text, if you really want to resist its import, you can do so with these more literary approaches. But if you want to listen, the text will lead you in these sorts of directions. And I think that posture of reading is something that for me, that was one of the things that I needed to get over. And to learn to read the text in this way required me to step outside of that looking for theological, systematic propositions mindset. If I could move us along uh, to uh, chapter two, which is the uh, supposed to be the subject matter of this episode. Uh, we're, we're well into the episode and we're getting around to it finally. It's actually fairly easy to sum summarize, I think. And let me let me go ahead and do that and then uh, fill in some details. Uh, we can fill in details after that. The title of the chapter is The Purpose of the World. And uh, he cites several passages of scripture, Romans 1, Psalm 19, 
to make the argument that the world reveals God and the world is created with the purpose of revealing God and to display his glory. That's inevitable. Makers reveal themselves in the things that they make. He uses some human examples to illustrate that. And it's it's a biblical theme. That's a, that's a fairly obvious biblical theme. Uh, Romans 1 is the most obvious and clearest. The, the invisible things of God, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in what has been made so that men are without excuse. Everything that God has made has some, reveals something of his character and his of his glory. Then the second stage is to say that human beings are uniquely images of God. That's from Genesis 1, obviously. Uh, We're made as the image of God. And so human character and activity, uh, human capacities for knowing, willing, making, creating, human capacities uniquely reveal God. Everything reveals God in a general way, but human beings specifically reveal God and reveal God partly by uh, being set up as God's uh, God's prince over the rest of the creation. Now, you put those two things together, if the whole world reveals God and human beings are the image of God, then everything in the world not only reveals God, but also reveals something about human beings. So there's this uh, multiple lines of symbol uh, symbolizing. Uh, all creation symbolizes God. Human beings symbolize God in a unique way. Therefore, everything in the creation symbolizes man. And you can everything in the creation bears some some resemblance to humanity. And so he, for example, he he uh, gives some examples right at the end. God is a rock. That's a pass, that's a statement repeatedly in Deuteronomy that God is a rock. But then certain human beings are also described as rocks. Peter most prominently, but then um, the gemstones on the high priest's breastplate represent uh, the tribes of Israel. Those gemstones, variations of those gemstones, show up. In, at the end of Revelation as the foundation stones of New Jerusalem, which is the bridal city, which is the people of God. So you have God is symbolized by rocks. Rocks symbolize God, but rocks are also symbolic of certain human qualities. And so being rock-like in the proper way uh, is both, uh, if, we're, if, if, we, if we're rock-like in the proper way, we're both resembling something in the creation, in this case, an inanimate, inanimate thing in the creation, and at the same time, we're resembling and reflecting and imaging something that is uh, a reality uh, in God. So that's the overall scheme that Jim is presenting in this chapter. I, I should add that a, a fair bit of this chapter is taken up with uh, fairly long block quotations. There's a quotation from Augustine where Augustine talks about, uh, he contrasts a created reality where if you're searching for light, you go to one sort of uh, created thing. If you're searching for if you're thirsty, you go to a fountain, but God has himself both light and fountain. So things that in creation are distinct are somehow com- uh, 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 one in, uh, in, within the triune God. I came across that quotation recently and was uh, struck by it and thought I had, was the first time I had read it. And then I go back to Through New Eyes and I realized that I had read it uh, 30 or 40 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, the first time. So there's a the quotation from uh, Augustine, there's a several uh, great uh, summaries from Bovink's, uh, I think it's a Doctrine of God, it's part of the, the big Bovink uh, Reform Dogmatics collection now, but it, at the time, it, w- it was a separate book published as uh, Bovink's Doctrine of God, uh, where Bovink is, is laying out the biblical evidence for creation revealing God, human beings revealing God in all these complex ways. There's a great quotation from uh, John Frame that's doing similar things. So I think those are um, 
those are really illuminating quotations. And I think they, again, buttress the point that Jim makes in the, in the rules for interpretation, that he's, he's not just making things up. He's drawing on the mind of the Western, of Western theology, Augustine, and he's drawing on some important, uh, uh, more modern uh, reform theologians uh, as he's developing this point. Something that occurred to me as I was reading through this chapter, it made me wonder, do I, when I look out at creation, do I put too much emphasis on the fact that we live in a fallen world and that we all are tainted by sin to some degree? And do I kind of let that um, influence me too much so that I don't see the many parallels between creation and God and the way in which even in a pale reflection, it resembles God and the way in which even fallen men reveal something of God's goodness and characteristics. And um, I think that I probably do. And I I hope that reading through this will be something of a a corrective in in terms of the way I I view the world. Yeah, I I won't try to make a judgment about uh, your own self-assessment there, James. I'll let you, I'll leave that to you. Uh, but I, I think it has been uh, this book and just being uh, uh, being taught by Jim over many years, it definitely has, uh, it's not just intellectually stimulating, but it's spiritually enriching, partly for the reason that you said that uh, you're, you learn to look at the world differently. You learn to see, um, uh, you learn to see glory everywhere in, in spite of sin. And Romans 1 is talking about a fallen world, but a fallen world in which invisible qualities of God are clearly seen being understood by what has been made. That's still the case. And Jim's work has been tremendously personally helpful to me as I, uh, for the way I engage the world and think about it. So intellectually stimulating, spiritually stimulating, and then recognizing that you're not just looking at a world of glory, but you're looking at a world where everything is a, is a revelation of the living God. You're not escaping that ever. And so, and, but, but what Jim is doing in the, in this book is putting specifics to that. So it's not just that you see a cloud going by over the sun and you think uh, that's a beautiful sight to see uh, the cloud passing over the sun and see the sunbeams coming out. But then you start meditating on that in the light of scripture and have all these associations of God appearing in a cloud of glory, God appearing in a cloud that's bright with light, God himself as the light. And so that's an experience that we have. Uh, most days, there's some cloud in the sky that uh, and light and and clouds uh, interact with each other. So most days, you're seeing some specific way that the creation is uh, is manifesting the glory of God. I'm putting in mind, I can't remember the exact quotation, but there's the opening monologue in uh, Terrence Malick's great film Tree of Life, uh, where he talks about uh, the way of grace and the way of nature, and uh, in his in the way that this is set up, the way of nature is to see the glory in everything that, uh, that uh, to have your eyes open, to see, to see God at work in, in everything that he's made. And the fact that we're embedded within this world, we're always um, present within this world. This world is um, one in which our own bodies are very much involved. Our bodies are symbols that themselves point to ways that God is described within scripture. Um, that, helps us, I think, to recognize that this approach naturally produces a more participatory form of knowledge. And as a result, it's not surprising that liturgy should be so 
central within um, Jim's understanding. One of the things that uh, comes out in the Bavik quotations, uh, I don't think this specific point is made in the quotations that he uses, but it's a point that Bavik makes, uh, is that um, the various ways that the Bible speaks about the creation as revealing God, that is a reflection of the reality that God created the world and created the world and put his imprint, the imprint of his character on the world that he made. Uh, That's the opposite of the way that we sometimes think about those relationships. So we might think, for example, that ancient Israelites looked at a rock and then the rock has certain uh, positive qualities. It's solid, it's majestic, you know, a, a jutting rock coming up out of the, out of the ground. It provides shade and they projected that rockness onto the creator. And they said, God is like that. Or they look at uh, human, human capacities or human experiences and project those onto God. And God is thought about in an anthropomorphic fashion. Bavink acknowledges that there's anthropomorphism that's pervasive in the Bible, but he also says that the anthropomorphism is based on a more fundamental fact about creation, and particularly about human beings, which is that human beings in creation are theomorphic. I don't think Bavink uses exactly that term, but as I recall, he uses the term archetype and ectype. So God is the archetype of the rock, and the rock is actually the shadowy symbol, the shadowy um, copy of the true rockness of God. The, the absolute rockness is found in God. The symbolic form of rockness, the uh, copy form of rockness is found in a rock. The absolute reality of all, the, all of human quality, all, all human capacities and human powers are found in God. And human beings are created images, created ectypes of the archetype that's found in God. So it reverses uh, the way that uh, we often think about the way that uh, creation relates to the creator. Instead of thinking about anthropomorphism or groping awa- around in the world looking for things that resemble God, we don't have to grope because everything resembles God. Uh, and um, so the, to describe God in terms of the creation is just the reverse of accepting the doctrine of creation. Of course, of course, created things are going to reflect God because he made them. Right, and and this is touched upon, I think, in a slightly different way in one of the quotes from uh, Barvink when I think he comes um, starts talking a little bit about the way in which God accommodates himself to our limited senses and limited consciousness. And I guess this brings home, to me at least, the, the fact that when Jim talks about the way God has revealed himself in Scripture through symbols, this isn't really just a a tactic that God has chosen to employ, but it's almost just by the necessity of the case. There there is nothing that can kind of reveal to us truly God as, as he is Um, in, there is just a a transcendence to God. And, and so symbols, you know, the whole language of, of symbols is almost the way in which God has to reveal himself to us. And I guess it seems to me then that the, way in which Jim is telling us scripture uh, talks is just sort of fundamental to the way in which a infinite and transcendent God has to reveal himself to his creation. And, and so there seems to be this harmony between the language of scripture and the nature of God and, and his own creation. J.G. Haman, uh, the uh, German counter-enlightenment figure, uh, uses the uh, states this by saying, the creator speaks to the creature through the creature. But it is the creator speaking, but he uses the creation in order to speak to us. 
Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.